The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus, there is always reason to rejoice. Love coming here and being with you all. Uh, it's, a, it's a real, it's a joy for me. So uh, would you pray with me as we get going? Father, I'm thankful for this morning that you've given to us another morning to breathe, another morning to uh, focus our minds and our hearts on you. And so I pray that you would help us do that now in these next few minutes as we spend some time looking at your word. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, fill, fill my friends here with your spirit so that your word would find a home in us and we would not just listen to your word, but we would actually uh, live in light of what it says. So uh, this is your work and your people and your word, and I pray that this would be your time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, CNN, a few years ago on their website, a travel aspect of their website, put uh, some tips for our American friends on how to act like a Canadian when you're traveling, right? Because sometimes Americans don't get a lot of love in airports and around the world, and so they want to act like their neighbors to the north. So here's, here's some tips that CNN Travel gave to the Americans about how to act more like Canadians. Uh, first of all, they said it's really important that you smile a lot. Don't, like, you know, that, that kind of, like, half smile. Like, not a full smile, like you're ready to talk to someone, but not, like, just a little bit of a smile. Let people know, like, hey, I see you. I, I see that you're a person, and, and I'm, I'm trying to, this is just politeness. So half smile. Uh, after the half smile, if you do anything near someone, say sorry. Like, even if nothing bad happened, just say sorry, right? You walked close to them, it, just apologize all the time, perpetually. Uh, another, another point they said is, look, if, if someone comes up in a conversation that's Canadian, just capitalize on it, right? doesn't matter how obscure of a celebrity they are, Alan Thicke, Canadian, right? Like, like, you have to make the connections of who's a Canadian because apparently we have a lot of pride in our obscure celebrities that, like, very, very few people know. But when they come up in conversation, we're very happy to say, oh, do you know they're Canadian? They're like, no. Well, apparently we do. And so they, you, you have to do that in airports in order for people to know you're Canadian, See, the whole point of the blog was, here's how to fake your citizenship. <laughs> Just act totally like something you're not. Well, real citizenship, though, comes more with more than just a few like little trivial factoids about which celebrities are Canadian and the half smile and the apologizing all the time. Real citizenship actually also comes with responsibilities. So Canadian responsibilities on, on the government website include things like obeying the law, just really generic, vague thing. All of them, just obey them. Uh, taking responsibility for oneself and one's family. I don't know if you knew that. That's a Canadian responsibility for citizens. Uh, serving on a jury. If you get that letter in the mail, congratulations. You can give your responsibilities to the country. Uh, and also voting in elections is a responsibility for citizens. And, and our passage, the reason why I'm saying all that is because our passage this morning in Philippians 4 actually uh, addresses some of the responsibilities for what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. So people who belong to the kingdom of God, Paul's going to address, he's going to bring up at least three uh, citizenship responsibilities for those who are kingdom citizens. So uh, just to get a context a little bit for where we are, we're kind of coming back into the Philippian sermon series. So here's Philippians chapter 4 verse 1. 
Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So the, our passage starts with a therefore. And so when there's a therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Good Bible study technique. So what is Paul referring to when he says, therefore? So let's read the first few verses just ahead of Philippians 4, uh, Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here's what Paul's saying. If you are a Christian, if you have repented of your sin, you've believed the gospel, you are a kingdom citizen. And now he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we're going to be studying this passage in, in shorter chunks, and we're going to see three responsibilities for kingdom citizens. First, to pursue reconciliation. Secondly, to persistently rejoice. And third, to present requests. So at least three responsibilities for kingdom citizens are to pursue reconciliation, persistently rejoice, and present requests. So first, let's look at the first responsibility for kingdom citizens, which is to pursue reconciliation. Verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then verse 5, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So in this section, there's a command. Paul is commanding his, his true companion to help these women, Yodia and Syntyche, agree with each other in the Lord. So we don't know who this true companion is for Paul. Uh, we know Paul planted the church in Philippi. Uh, and so he probably has a certain leader or elder in mind that he's actually writing to. But we don't have that person's identi identity known to us. But he's commanding this true companion of his to help bring reconciliation to these two sisters who Paul says were fellow workers with him, who have labored by his side. These are women who are known in the church, who are influential, who are active serving in the midst of the church. And Paul's commanding his true companion to help bring reconciliation to these two women. So imagine something like this, like maybe you're part of a core team of a new church plant, right? You've been going for a few months, things started out really great, really passionate, your, your pastor's like amazing, and now there's like a bit of a conflict brewing, 
between two people in the midst of your core team who are known among the community. And here's what Paul's saying to them. You need to reconcile with each other. Kingdom citizens pursue reconciliation. Unity in churches is a mandate for Christians. So Paul's saying now twice in this letter, earlier in chapter 2, he, he, he brought up uh, these words, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, basically if you're a Christian at all, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So twice now in this short little letter, Paul has brought up this command to be united. The first time he was more generic to the whole congregation. The second time he was getting a little bit more specific with two exact people that needed reconciliation in their situation. Here's the big thing you need to get in your head about this first point. It is that kingdom citizens are not self-centered and stubborn. They pursue reconciliation. This is what it looks like to be a part of our king's kingdom. Because it's easy to fake citizenship, right? So, like, imagine you were, were you're an American and you were taking that CNN travel blog really seriously and you decide you want to be an American or a Canadian. So you, you have the, you decide to put a Canadian flag on your bag and you're in the airport, you're actually in an airplane. And this person beside you sees the Canadian flag on your, your carry-on bag and they said, oh, you're Canadian. And you're like, yeah, eh? And they're like, okay, so, so where in Canada are you from? And you say, I'm from Vancouver. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Like, what part of Vancouver? And you start blanking because you're faking it and you don't know. So you say Toronto. <laughs> and they know. They know you're a fake. Look, you can know someone's a fake kingdom citizen if instead of a desire and inclination to pursue reconciliation, they remain self-centered and stubborn. See, real kingdom citizens pursue reconciliation. They, they, they out themselves by their self-centeredness as fake citizens. I don't know if you've heard the term narcissist. Okay, it comes from uh, the story from Greek mythology. So you're going to hear some Greek mythology. Uh, Narcissus is this uh, god in Greek mythology who was, like, really good-looking. Like, everyone loved Narcissus. <laughs> Narcissus, right? Everyone loved him. So there's this one woman in particular, this one goddess, Echo, who saw Narcissus in the forest and saw him, and she wanted Narcissus really badly. So she is pursuing him, and Narcissus isn't, he doesn't like other people very much, and so he totally rejects Echo, and she's sad, and all you hear of her in the forest is an Echo, right? So she's really sad, but there's this other goddess named Nemesis, who's the goddess of revenge, and she sees this whole scene play out, and she is right mad at Narcissus. So what she does is she, she sets up a scenario to trick Narcissus. And so what she does is she leads him to a little pool. And he comes to this pool and he looks at it and he sees the most beautiful reflection. And he's infatuated with himself. And he tries to grasp for that person in the reflection, but he realizes it's not actually real. It's just a reflection. And he is heartbroken and destitute because he cannot have what he really wants, which is himself. And that was the plight of Narcissus. Look, it's a funny story, right? 
but there's a little narcissist in all of us. This, this inclination, this desire for what we want, for, for us to be the center of the universe, for, for us to have our, our way, and we are less concerned about other people and more concerned about our own self-satisfaction, our own self-image. We're all a little bit of a narcissist. Here's the problem. Narcissists will kill churches. They will. If you come into a church, if you come into a local church and, and you function, you operate like you are the most important person in the world, you might not say that out loud because good Christians don't say things like that out loud, right? But you act like it because something will come up in a, in a church setting where maybe you'll do like a worship night where you'll, you'll fast and pray about the Lord's guidance for your church. And you go to that worship night and you have a very strong sense that the Lord wants you to do this particular thing as a local church. But the leadership comes afterwards and say, we feel the Holy Spirit's guiding us as a church to do that particular thing. And you could in that moment be a narcissist. And think to yourself, yeah, but I feel really strongly that this is the way we need to go. And you have two options now. Either you could be humble, like what verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Either you could be the kind of person who people see as, hey, even when things don't go their way, they're a reasonable person. They're gentle towards other people. Or you can double down on your narcissism and say, I know what's best. Because I'm me, and if I didn't think it was best, I wouldn't think it. See, there's an option that you have. Either you can seek reconciliation, or you can live like a narcissist and destroy yourselves and others. Paul's saying, I'm begging you, fellow worker, true companion, help Yodi and Syntyche come together to be of the same mind, because churches that are divided are focusing on all the wrong things. Instead, our reasonableness should be made known to everyone. Rather than being known for like, you know, the Hulk, who's like, you don't like me when I'm angry. Or Donald Duck. I don't know if you've ever thought of Donald Duck, the character. But here's this duck man guy who wears a shirt and no pants. And that's cool, apparently. It's totally fine. And he's a snap show, man. Like, if something doesn't go his way, he's like, all the time. He's just really, really mad. The point is, kingdom citizens aren't like Donald Duck, who just lose their mind when things don't go their ways. They're known to be reasonable. And they pursue reconciliation when conflicts arise. Listen, conflicts will arise. The question is, are you going to live like a kingdom citizen and actually fulfill your responsibility to pursue reconciliation, or are you just a fake? And is the little narcissist going to come out to play in that moment? See, kingdom citizens pursue reconciliation. Secondly, kingdom citizens have the responsibility to persistently rejoice. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Both those words rejoice are written in a commanding tense. He's he's doubling down on the command, Paul. Like, just rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. This is what you need to do. Paul's writing these words while he's in prison. It was likely that he was in house arrest, but house arrest is still imprisoned. So here's a guy whose whose life circumstance, from from just looking at it, doesn't exactly lead someone to think, I'm going to rejoice. You know, I'm going to be the kind of guy who, who praises God even though I'm in 
prison. And Paul is the one who is living this out. And Paul is the one who's commanding the Philippians to, to rejoice, to have a persistent rejoicing. Now, the question could, should be raised. Really, like in every kind of situation, you, you want us to rejoice. That, that doesn't make sense. It seems fake, right? Because your situation, your, your circumstances around you are difficult. Your finances are, are crumbling, and your marriages are crumbling, and your kids are out of line, and your health is failing, and, and you have nowhere to live affordably, and, and you look at your circumstances, and you think, you want me to rejoice the Lord in these, do you? Well, listen, you're not rejoicing in your present circumstances. You're rejoicing because of the God who has saved you in the midst of your present circumstances. Re- rejoicing in the midst of every situation is not just the, pow- the, the power of positive thinking. It's not just saying, I- I'm going to start rejoicing and better things are going to come my way. No. Paul, Paul was eventually killed for his faith. It's not a great way for your story to end if you're judging everything based on your present circumstances. And yet, Paul says, rejoice in the midst of everything. And the reason I think he can say that is because he knows, the Apostle Paul knows, that there's a difference between a happy, clappy, naive Christian and a joyful rejoicing in the midst of difficulty. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, I think in our minds and experiences, we we flip those things. We think the light thing is the eternity to come and the weighty part is our affliction. And yes, our struggles and difficulties, we feel those on us and rightfully so. We're not supposed to just pretend they're not there. No, we, we know our outer self is wasting away. And yet Paul says, in light of the glory yet to come, your momentary affliction is light compared to the weightiness of eternity coming your way. See, if you're a kingdom citizen, you can rejoice persistently because you know what's coming, not because of what currently is. So Paul says, rejoice. And again, he tells us, rejoice. Because the, the gospel, the, the promise of an eternal kingdom with God is a bigger story than our present circumstances. God is not out to write a story about your life being all that it should be and all that it could be according to your design. God is writing a story for the whole cosmos where he's bringing all things together into newness and perfection. And God is calling you into that kingdom and he is preparing you for that kingdom through your momentary afflictions. They feel heavy to us, but in light of the glory yet to come, they're light and momentary. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of traveling with a toddler it's uh, horrible, is what it is. So uh, I, I had friends who offered us a very good deal on a timeshare in Hawaii for a week. So we just had to find our way out there, and we could stay in this really great place for a week. So my wife and I said, let's do it. Let's go for it. Uh, we decide we're going to bring our six-month-old toddler with us, and we thought this was a good idea to go on the plane. 
It wasn't. It was a bad idea. Because here's what happens when you travel on planes with toddlers and other human beings, is that other human beings assume that you are the worst parent ever. Like, you, you won the award. Worst parent. Your child never really settled. That They tell you, oh, try to get them to drink or swallow or whatever. I'm, like, trying to command a six-month-old, like, swallow, yawn. Pop your ears on your own. No, he's screaming his head off. It's not going well. He stinks. We're upset. It's awful. What, what helps you in the moment when you're on the plane is knowing the destination. You know Hawaii's on the other end. So you endure the scowls of complete strangers who look at you and think you're the worst person in the entire world for subjecting your child to this. You endure all of that and you say, it's okay, I'm Canadian, right? And so here's the celebrity... <laughs> You endure the scowls because you know Hawaii is coming. Listen, this is the kind of image Paul's trying to give you, that, that in, in your momentary affliction, it's difficult. But in light of where you are headed, it's light and it's momentary. He's not trying to deny how difficult your situation is. He's trying to demonstrate the glories of the future yet to come. And when you have that perspective... You can rejoice. And you can rejoice. And you can rejoice. Because that's what kingdom citizens do. There's a guy by the name of Horatio Spafford. This is a great preacher story, and I'm preaching, so I'm going to tell the story. Horatio Spafford was a really successful businessman from the 1800s, lived in Chicago, uh, had lots of money and properties. In 1871, there was the great Chicago fire that destroyed thousands and thousands of properties and a lot of people lost all of their, their worldly wealth and possessions. Spafford was one of those people who lost it all. And so he decides he's going to send his family off uh, in a boat to Europe because he has some family connections in Europe. So he ships his wife and his four daughters off to Europe. He stays back to make some final preparations to eventually join them over in Europe. While this great, big, majestic ship is sailing from the states to Europe, it it gets into a crash in the middle of the ocean. And this great big majestic boat sinks in two hours. So many people drowned in that accident. Spafford's wife makes it over to Europe and she sends a note back to Horatio saying, saved alone. Spafford receives the news of the loss of his four daughters. He has no earthly possessions anymore, and he has to go join his grieving wife in Europe to start everything over again. And while he's on that trip back over to Europe to join his wife, right around the place that they thought the crash probably occurred, he sat down in his room and he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And the reason he can write those words is because of these ones. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Look, kingdom citizens, in the midst of their difficulties, persistently rejoice. Because they know what's coming for them. So rejoice. And I'll say it again. Rejoice. Third responsibility for kingdom citizens 
is that kingdom citizens present requests. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here's Paul commanding these Philippians who are in situations that are going to tempt them towards anxiousness, commanding them to not be anxious and instead to pray. So he's telling them, look, in the midst of your, your, your moments where you, you have worry, don't worry. Stop it. I don't know if you've seen that Bob Newhart skit. You can Google it on YouTube of, where he's a counselor and people are coming into his office with all of their issues and people come in saying, you know, I, I think I have all of these bad relationships because I'm acting out on a bad relationship with my father. And so I think I'm reliving that bad relationship over and over again. And Newhart listens to them and says, okay, stop it. Stop having bad relationships. Another person comes in. I think I have this issue. I'm I'm addicted to these things. And Bob Newhart says, okay, stop it. Stop being addicted. It's really bad kind of pastoral counseling advice to just come to someone and say, okay, there's your problem. Stop it. Here's what Paul's doing to anxious people. He's saying, stop it. Stop responding to your situations by anxiousness. Instead, present your requests. So Paul's not saying that your situation doesn't deserve worry or that it doesn't make sense why you would be anxious about this situation. Paul's saying in the midst of your difficult situation, instead of just being anxious and worrying, present your requests to God. My my wife made a a little toy for my son who's three and it's got like color water in it and sparkly things. And when you turn the bottle over, all the sparkle things go to the bottom and then you're supposed to go back and forth. It's like a little sensory thing. You watch the sparkles go up and down in the bottle as you turn it. And Ben's supposed to play with it, but I never let him because it's too fun. So I'm always doing it myself. I think we do this with our worry. We stuff our worries inside of a bottle and then we just look at it. We flip it over and we look at it more and more. And then we call friends over to say, hey, look at my worry. Isn't it cool? Look. (laughs) It's worry. Look at at it. Paul's saying stop living in your anxious moments. Stop worrying. Stop bottling up your worries. Instead, take those things that deserve worry and, and present them to God. Instead of staring at your worry, pray. Present those requests to God. And Paul says that, look, if, if we do this, if we, if we do this responsibility as kingdom citizens to present our request to God, that there's actually a benefit that comes. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So how is it that in the midst of our difficulties, but we're presenting our requests to God, how is it that we can move from a, a feeling anxious to feeling at peace. How does that transition of, of anxiety to peace actually take place? Because your situation hasn't changed. You can almost hear the Philippians saying this to Paul. Paul, you're still in prison. Like your situation hasn't changed. So, so obviously that peace that comes isn't because the dynamics of your life change. 
So what, what does that mean? How, how, what moves the Christian living in difficulty who's prone to anxiousness into a place of peace? I think that Philippians 4 is part of Paul's larger theology of prayer. I think the other part comes from Romans chapter 8. So I saw someone in the hallway before the first service, and he was like, hey, you're back. Where's your flip chart? And I was like, ah, I didn't bring it this time. But here's Romans 8, like I did last time, okay? So here's, I want you to hear the other side of Paul's view of prayer. So first side, present your requests in the midst of your anxious moments. That's part one. Here's part two. Romans 8, starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So he was talking previously about them living in the midst of a difficult situation, similar to what he's doing in Philippians 4 here. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Look, Paul is telling the Romans in this situation, your, your weakness is exponential right now. You're in difficult situations. Finances are crumbling. Your, your marriage is a mess. Your health is deteriorating. You are in a difficult spot. Add to that weakness of your circumstance, the difficulty of you, not, not, you, you don't even know how to pray in the midst of it. You look at your sorrows and you think to yourself, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be praying for in this situation. Paul says, man, you're really weak. But the spirit helps us in our weakness. The spirit is the one who intercedes for us. We don't know what to pray for in the midst of our struggles and sorrows. We don't even know how to pray. But as we give it a go, the spirit intercedes for us according to God's will. The spirit is the one who prays for us to the father. So um, my, my son, my three-year-old son, he's, he's autistic and he hasn't developed any uh, verbal communication. That doesn't mean he doesn't make noises. It just means he can't speak yet. And so uh, we often, when my wife and I are with him in a, in a situation where we're at someone's house, so let's imagine you invited my family over to your place for lunch. And we're at your place and my son starts making his noises. And you're sitting there thinking, I have no idea how to respond to the situation. Benji knows he has a need, but he can't articulate what he actually wants. He can't provide the words to help bring uh, help to to his needs. So what happens is, is my wife will intercede for him. She'll say to me, hey, Greg, I think Ben wants his milk. So then I'll go get him the milk and bring it to him. Sarah, in that moment, interceded for Ben, who did not know how to ask for what he needed in his moment of distress. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. When we are in difficulty and don't know how to pray, the Spirit is the one who prays for us. And he prays for us according to the will of God. So sometimes when uh, my wife and I try to intercede for Ben, we don't get it right. Because we're like, okay, he's making his noises, we're at your house. And I say to Sarah, hey, he actually wants his milk. Sarah brings the milk. He throws the milk away. Milk was the wrong answer. He didn't want the milk. What he wanted was Paw Patrol. Because he always wants Paw Patrol. That's always the answer. See, sometimes as parents for Ben, we intercede poorly. We get it wrong. 
But look, the Holy Spirit never intercedes poorly. The Holy Spirit always asks for what we need according to the will of God. So look, in the midst of your difficult circumstance, Paul is saying, don't be anxious, present your request. And you say, I don't even know how to pray in this situation. And Paul says, don't worry, the Spirit's got you. The Spirit will intercede for you. So instead of living and looking at your worry, just pray. God will accomplish his purposes. He will, but you have the responsibility to pray. See, when you know that even in the midst of the greatest difficulty and you don't even know how to pray, when you come to your heavenly father and ask him to move, you can know that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you so that God's purposes take place in your life. And his purposes are your eternal glory. He will bring you there. These momentary afflictions are preparing you for that. So look, as a kingdom citizen, it's not just that you get to pray to the king of the cosmos. It's that as a kingdom citizen, the, the, the king of the cosmos prays for you. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is interceding for you in your struggles and difficulties. God will work together good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And when we know that, then we respond in our difficult circumstances. Instead of bottling up our worries and telling our friends to look at our worries, we, stead, we just bring those to God and ask him to move. See, doesn't, doesn't that give you peace? We worship a big God. He's not just big, he's good. And he is going to work his purposes together for your life. No matter what your present circumstances look like, he will bring you to glory. It's going to happen. And he's praying for you in the midst of it. So as we live in the struggle and are tempted to be anxious by our momentary afflictions, kingdom citizens pray to the God of the cosmos. And this God of the cosmos prays for us. And as we sit and live in the midst of that waiting, we know that the eternal kingdom is going to fully and finally come. And we know that it's that eternal kingdom that we're actually the citizens of anyways. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good and your word is good and your promises are good and you promise to work together for our good. And we don't deserve any of it because we're just rebels who want to be God, but, but you pursue us and you chase us and you save us. And now we have a hope and we have a kingdom to live in because our, our king gave himself up and instead of being narcissistic and selfish and stubborn, he gave up his rights so that he could live perfectly, die for us and rise again and save us into this kingdom. So Father, would you help us by your spirit live as kingdom citizens? Would you help us pursue reconciliation? Would you help us be persistently rejoicing? Would you help us present our requests to you in prayer rather than bottling them up in worry? We love you. We're praying all these things for your fame. And we pray them in Jesus' name.